Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we will read from Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25. Hebrews, verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. We stand to honor God's Word through, who, through which He speaks to us this morning. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it you speak to us as your people. Lord, we need to hear from your word this morning. I pray that I would not be in the way, but that you would exalt yourself. I pray that you would teach us from your word, that spirit, you would teach us all, that you would give me strength, but you would help me to learn and help all of us to learn. Grow us together and help us to help one another grow to knowing you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. We are here from all sorts of different walks of life, from different backgrounds, because of you, Lord Jesus, because of what you did on the cross, because of your death and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we honor you. Be honored this morning as we come to your word. Bless this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may recall a couple weeks ago, uh, back on February 21st, we talked about this issue of what is the church. What is the church? Uh, And then we kind of took a slight detour, although it matched. We talked about on the February 28th, uh, the spheres of authority and and that issue, which really does relate to the issue of what the church is. And then Paul was with you last week. I'm glad you guys got to meet Paul and spend some time with him. Uh, And then this week, we're really kind of coming back to that idea of the church. And uh, we asked before, what is the church? And as you recall, I gave you a very long definition, uh, but it's going to help us as we come to a, a different, a sort of different question this morning. But let's remind ourselves of that definition. What is the church? It's there in your bulletin. The church is the temple of God, i.e. the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. That's what the temple is. It's the, that's the church in this era, begun by Christ on the day of Pentecost, founded on himself as the cornerstone and his apostles and New Testament prophets and consisting of all true believers, Jew and Gentile, in union with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit who, functions, who function as priests offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Short definition, what is the church? The church is the temple of God in this era. In this era, in this time, since the day of Pentecost to today, the church is the temple of God. And, and you remember we talked about that before, and we, we talked about some of the implications of that. We didn't get to all of them. We'll get to more today. But we talked about uh, immediately the implications for gathering, right? How do you, the temple is always a beacon. It's always, it's always there to demonstrate to a watching world uh, the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. Well, if, if the stones in this era are individuals, they're people, they're us, it's not this building, but it's the people who are members of this church. If they're the temple, then how does the temple show up? Well, it shows up when it gathers, when it gathers on a Sunday morning. And so when it sings to each, uh, each other, I just really appreciated the singing this morning. So beautiful, so encouraging, and so honoring to the Lord. As we come to, ga- to gather together to hear God's word, to sing to one another, to encourage one another, it is the local temple showing up on the map to encourage each other, but then also to be a beacon to a watching world. So we talked about some of those implications for the Sunday gathering. 
But today what we're going to do is we're going to ask a uh, related question, but slightly different than what we did before. We talked about what is the church? Okay, it's the temple of God in this era. Today we're going to ask who is the church? Who is the church? And what I mean by that is who's a part, if, 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 if the, the people as they gather together are part of that local temple, then, then how do we know who's, who's part of that local temple? Isn't that a good question? How do we know who's in? How do we know who's part of that local temple? So that's what we mean when we say, who is the church? Who is part of the local temple, the local church? How do we identify each other? And again, it's really this issue of identity. The reason we're going through these things, again, we're going to, after Easter, we're going to start into a series in Matthew, but we're taking some time in between then and now to to talk about uh, this, this issue of what is the church, but it's an issue of identity. If we if we know who we are, who we really are in God's eyes, then we live accordingly. That's, that's how the, the Bible talks. If we understand our identity, then we live out that identity. We live accordingly. So that's why we want to ask, who? Who is part of the local church? Now, before we jump into this, there's a caveat I have. When we talk about the church, there's different layers. We, and we saw that even when we were talking about the church as the temple. There's the universal church, uh, the church of all believers being joined to Christ and being built on the New Testament uh, apostles and prophets and Christ is the cornerstone. There's the universal church. It spans all nations, spans time. But there's also uh, the local church, right? There's a local manifestation of that bigger reality. We're the local church here right now. There's also this other category you could think of, the visible versus the invisible church. You see, the invisible church is, is those true believers, those who are truly brought in. Every believer is brought into the church, right? There's those true believers that Christ has brought into the church that he's effectually called into his people. And then there's the visible church, right? Uh, the visible church, those should overlap ideally 100%, right? The visible and the invisible church in an ideal setting should overlap 100%. And yet the reality is, is that I don't know my brother or sisters, the person who's in front of me. I don't know their heart ultimately. Only the Lord does, right? And so there's what's visibly displayed uh, versus what is invisible. What is invisible? What is the true church versus what we see? Ideally, if we're, we're obeying Christ, we're relying on him, those should have a high degree of overlap, and yet we know that we don't ultimately know people's hearts. So that's just a caveat as we go into this morning, the visible versus invisible church and the universal versus the local church. And I just remind you one more time, remember the temple is, it's not this building, right? The local church, the local temple, it's not this building, it's it's you all, right? It's the people. It's those individual stones coming together. And what's interesting is it's the, the New Testament kind of mixes metaphors. It mixes metaphors because it not only talks about the local church as the local temple, but it also talks about it as a priesthood, as a priesthood. Turn over to First Peter, and you'll see Peter mix these metaphors together. And we're going to dovetail in with this this morning. <clears throat> First Peter 2 Starting in verse 4, 1 Peter 2, verse 4 says this, As you come to him, that's to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So there's our temple metaphor. But catch this, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so the New Testament not only talks about the local church as the local temple, but also the local priesthood. Uh, you, those who are in Christ here this morning are priests. They are not only living stones in the temple, but are priests offering sacrifices to God, acceptable, acceptable sacrifices through 
Jesus Christ. Now that helps us with our question of identification. Remember our big question this morning is how, who is the church? Who is part of the church? How do we identify them? Well, first, the first way you identify who's part of the church is initially through baptism. Initially through baptism. So our initial identification, the initial identification as the local church, the local temple, the local priesthood is through the waters of baptism. And you see that why we talk about baptism and why we talked about, I just mentioned this idea of priesthood is really this idea of baptism goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the Old Testament and it goes back to the Old Testament to uh, the high priest's uh, ordination, to the high priest's ordination. Turn if you want. Again, we're gonna, we've been doing this the last few weeks because we're, we're examining some of these topics and we're going through Scripture and what does Scripture have to say about them. We're, we're going through a lot of passages. So again, either you can flip along with me um, or you can just listen and, and pay attention to what we're talking about. But Exodus 29, uh, verse 4. Exodus 29, verse 4. Now remember, uh, this is when they're building the tabernacle. They're right in the middle of building the tabernacle, which is, in that era, the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. So right in the middle of it, we get Exodus 29, 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Now that's the idea there. It's not just a sprinkling. It's a full body washing. It's a full body washing. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the, the coat and the robe of the ephod uh, and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them and the priesthood shall be theirs as a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. You shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And, and it, uh, that idea of ordination is talked about again in Leviticus. But what's interesting is it gets brought up again in Leviticus 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement. You remember the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement was one day in the year where, where the, the whole nation and the tabernacle and the priesthood were sort of re-sanctified. It was kind of a re-upping, a reboot of the whole sacrificial and priestly system. But really, this whole body washing that you see here as initial ordination for the priest was reiterated again on that Day of Atonement. Now, why? Why this washing of the priest? Well, it's ordaining them. It's saying, you are cleansed, right? It's signifying that they're being cleansed so that they can enter into the most holy place, right? Once a year on a day of atonement and only once a year could the high priest enter the holy of holies, the most concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth into that inner sanctuary and take part of that. Now fast forward to the New Testament and to Christ's death on the cross. What immediately happened as soon as Christ gave up his spirit and died on that cross? You remember what immediately happened in the book of Matthew, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You remember what was on that curtain? On that curtain was cherubim, right? Cherubim. Why was that there cherubim on that curtain? Because it's supposed to remind you of Eden. Remember, we talked about this when we talked about the temple through Scripture. That Eden in the Garden of Eden was an initial, uh, the original uh, garden temple, garden sanctuary. But when Adam and Eve sinned, there was cherubim guarding the way back to God, right? Well, that, that symbolized in the temple and the tabernacle, that curtain into the holy place, they guarded it, and only the high priest once a year could enter that holy of holies. But through Christ's death, through Christ's death, he has reversed that exile to where we can now enter into the most holy place. We can experience and draw near to his concentrated presence. And that really brings us back around to Hebrews. Back around to Hebrews. You see a lot of the background of Hebrews. It uses all the sacrificial language and this temple language and all this stuff. But the lot of the background for Hebrews, you can see this and say uh, Hebrews 9, 6, or 7. Don't turn there, but just you can look at it later. A lot of the background for Hebrews is the Day of Atonement. It is that Day of Atonement. That one day where the high priest could enter uh, to into the Holy of Holies. 
And what's interesting, if we were to go back to the the passage that we just read. So, so Christ is presented as this great high priest who enters into the heavenly sanctuary. Remember we said that all the earthly sanctuaries are pointers to that heavenly sanctuary. But Christ as the great high priest in that heavenly sanctuary is entered and made complete atonement. Not just once a year, but once for all. And the implications of that are really shown back in Hebrews 10, the passage we read this morning. I want to read uh, a few of those verses again. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, so because Christ has entered once for all with the perfect sacrifice in the heavenly sanctuary by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which is an astounding thing. Because if you enter the holy of holies, except if you're the high priest and accept that one day a year in the Old Testament, you die. You are consumed by fire. And what is the author of Hebrews here saying? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happened in the Old Testament. If we can enter the Holy of Holies through the sacrifice of Christ, what does that make us? It makes us priests, doesn't it? If we can come into the most concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth, then that means we are God's priests. And that's affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament. Revelation, uh, we already read one of those in 1 Peter 2, uh, Revelation 5, 9 through 10, talks about Christ ransoming from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, languages, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Well, if we're priests, how do we signify that we've been brought into this priesthood? We need to be consecrated. We need to be ordained. We need to be baptized, whole body washed, to signify our cleansing so that we can come into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And this is, this is part of the imagery of baptism, this, this priestly ordination into service, this initial identification. And it's not the act in and of itself Right? It's not the act in and of itself, but it's because it identifies us with Christ's death. Uh, turn over to Romans, Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 says this, What shall we say then? Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, in the waters of baptism, what are we picturing? We are picturing that our old self is drowned, is dead has been identified with Christ's death on the cross. And yet, not only has our old self died, but as we are brought out of the water, we are signifying that we are united with Christ's resurrection. We're identifying with him. And then the use of water shows us that we're cleansed. We are a new creation in Christ because of what Christ has done. We are identifying with Christ in the waters of baptism. Think back to what we said uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about Acts. Remember we talked about when did the church start, and we, we tied it with this idea of baptism by the Holy Spirit. Remember at the beginning of Acts, uh, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, his apostles, and says, uh, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then Pentecost comes, and that's when that starts. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, we tied these together with what Jesus said at the beginning of Acts and says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made 
to drink of the one spirit. And so the idea is, right, we know that when someone is converted, that it only happens through the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. Only, and at that moment, when one is regenerated, brought to saving faith in Christ, repentance and faith in Christ, that person is baptized into the universal church. They're, they're brought into the temple. They're brought into the priesthood spiritually by the Holy Spirit. That's why baptism of the Spirit means. But then that is portrayed visually uh, and physically in the waters of baptism. And this is how the early church saw it. Acts 2. Acts 2. Right after the Pentecost, right after the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit starts... right after Peter's sermon, through which many get converted and put their faith in Christ, Acts 2, 38, says this. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, catch this. So they, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The idea is, spiritually, people are, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, baptized into the local church, into the local temple, into the local priesthood, being ordained to the, the spiritual priesthood. And then the natural consequence is to display that visually through the waters of baptism. And did you notice, they added 3,000 souls. How, do many, how did they know how many people got added? Because they counted how many people were baptized. They counted how many people were baptized, weren't they? The idea of the early church is you identify a person in the local church, you identify a member of the local church because they've been baptized, because they've been baptized. So this is this idea of initial identification, right? How do you know who's a part of the local church? Initially, through the waters of baptism, the initial sign of the waters of baptism. Galatians 3.27 puts it this way very strongly. For as many of you as excuse me, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The New Testament does not know of, except in one exception, thief on the cross. We all know that that exception, right? But but the New Testament does not know of an unbaptized Christian. Why? Because it's symbolizing identity with Christ. You cannot identify with Christ and not identify with the rest of his people, the rest of the priesthood, the rest of the temple. Turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, um, verse 18, Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the main command. Make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do you initially make a disciple, or at least display someone who is a disciple of Christ, who has placed their faith in Christ, through the waters of baptism. And this is not just an individual's pledge. It is. It is an individual's pledge of allegiance to Christ, to follow Christ. But notice here, this command in the Great Commission is given to the church. It's given to the church to make disciples by baptizing them. What does that mean? It means the church, it's not only the individual's pledge to follow Christ, it is also the church's affirmation by all that they can see that this one is truly a disciple of Christ and will follow them. They are received into the local church, the local temple, the local priesthood. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and it portrays many things. It portrays our identity with Christ, it portrays our cleansing through that, and it portrays our ordination and initiation into priestly service. Baptism joins a new, uh, a new disciple 
visibly portrays the joining of a new disciple, the one to the many in the local church. Now, here's a caveat, and we all probably know this caveat at this point. The church can get it wrong. The church can get it wrong. Acts 8 with Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician was baptized. Uh, It says he believed at a certain level, and yet it's shown when Peter talks to him, this guy is not saved, or he's not a believer, or at least not at that point. So the mere act of being dunked uh, doesn't do anything apart from true repentance and faith. But all Christians ought to be baptized, one, because Christ commands it, but it's also portraying. What's it portraying? Identification with Christ, identification with his people, ordination and initiation into the kingdom of priests. By way of application, if you have not been baptized, either you don't know Christ, you just haven't, you don't know him at all, right? So you haven't taken that step. Or maybe up to this point, you have not understood why baptism is so important as a disciple, as one who follows Christ. But from here on out, you can't live as saying, I'm a Christian and not be baptized because you're walking in a disobedience to the Lord. That's how you identify with Christ visibly to the watching world. Remember, the temple temple is a beacon to a watching world, right? How do the people show up? How do we know? How does the world know who's there? Through the waters of baptism, both the local church identifying that person and a watching world seeing. Uh, I heard of, uh, you, there was someone who was baptized down at the, the river uh, recently in this body, right? The, down at the river, and there were people walking by, and they were, they were asking questions. Hey, what's going on here? The, the baptism, right? That's what we're talking about. That's, it's not only for the church to recognize that one being joined to many, but it's also a watching world saying, oh, that person's a Christian. That person's a Christian. They belong to God's people. They belong to the local church. How do we know who is the church? Well, initially, we know that through the waters of baptism, through the waters of baptism. But how do we know in an ongoing way who is part of the church? Well, that's our next point. Continual identification comes through the Lord's Supper. Continual identification comes through the Lord's Supper. Let me take you again to Hebrews, Hebrews 13. Remember, Hebrews has this, this background of the, uh, this priestly background and this Day of Atonement background, and near the end, Hebrews 13.10, the author says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, he's talking about those who are part of the Israelite uh, temple service, the, the tabernacle service, he's saying we have an altar from, those who, uh, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, right? Now, the idea here is, is he's saying, he's saying uh, those priests who serve the temple, they eat the sacrifices, right? And so they're identifying in that priesthood and they're identifying in that people. And even the greater people of Israel are identifying with that. Well, he's saying, because we have Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, we, 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 we're, we, we partake in that altar. He's not saying that Christ is continually sacrificed like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We're not saying that. But he's saying that uh, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, you're, you're, you're portraying that once for all death by Christ, and you're portraying your participation and your identification with that one sacrifice. And you're displaying as a priesthood that you're together. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians talks about the same sort of reality. 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's talking about this issue of meat being sacrificed to the idols. And the issue seems to be that the Corinthians are saying, well, idols don't have any existence. So it doesn't matter if I go into that, that, uh, that idol's temple and have some meat with, those, uh, my, with my friends in that other temple. It doesn't matter, right? And Paul's like adamant, no, that's wrong. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he comes to the end of his argument and he says this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Now, that word participation, you remember Philippians, that word partnership, fellowship, that's the same word right there. So just point that out. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, we kind of just talked about that in Hebrews, participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What's Paul talking about? He's saying, look, in the the idol's temple, you're partaking in this meal, and you're partaking of this meal in the idol's temple. When you do that, you identify with that idol and the demon behind it. Uh, You identify with that, that other temple. You cannot do that. Because if you partake in the Lord's Supper, you're identifying with this temple and with this people because of the Lord's sacrifice. The issue is, if you're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, you are identifying with him, you are identifying with his people. Did you see that phrase in there, verse verse 17? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. When we partake in that bread, we are saying we share... When we take the bread and the cup, we're saying we share in the sacrifice of Christ. We are a priesthood and we are a temple because of the sacrifice of Christ. And because there's one, one uh, bread, one cup, we display our oneness. We display that we are one temple, one priesthood in distinction to every other false worship in the world. It's, a, it's an issue of identification an identification of the local temple, the local church, in distinction from every other false worship, here Paul says, idolatry in the world. Paul talks about the Lord's Supper later on a little bit more. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, famous text. We, we go to this text so much. Uh, usually we, we read a chunk of it, but actually it has a context, and so we're going to read the whole context, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, so the gathering, right? They're talking about the gathering. When they come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, the gathering, as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what's going on before we read further? What's going on? Early churches were held in big houses, right? People that owned a big house. The rich people had these big houses, and so the early Christians would gather there. The problem was, when the time came for the Lord's Supper, only a few could fit into kind of the special dining room, and everyone else had to kind of sit outside in this atrium, right? The problem was that the rich were doing what they normally did in that culture. They, they gathered together with the, the high and mighty, so to speak, and they, they ate together, they ate the best, and then everyone else kind of got the scraps and the leftovers, so it was creating this division and this faction in the body, and Paul is saying, this is, this is terrible what you're doing. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that when the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death Till he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, context, what's an unworthy manner? In a factious way, in a way that shows divisions in the body, right? Uh, in an unworthy way will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now, what's he talking about discerning the body? In context, the body that was just mentioned was the body and blood of the Lord. But what is he talking about? He's talking about factions in the church. He's talking about the church body discerning the church body. There's these factions in the church body. You need to discern that there's factions there. There ought not to be, and you ought to be one as you come together in the Lord's Supper. That's what he's talking about in discerning the body. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, for this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together, gathering, to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Long passage, what's the point? Because we eat one bread, we are one body, in distinction to every other false worship. That was 1 Corinthians 10. What's this one about? This is internal to the church. When you partake in the Lord's Supper, there ought not to be factions in the church, because What this is showing is that we participate in the sacrifice of Christ who has brought us into one body body, in distinction of social status, background, doesn't matter. We are one before the Lord. We are unified together as a people, as a priestly people, as a local temple before the Lord. The Lord's Supper portrays many things, but it shows our participation in the sacrifice on the altar of the cross as part of the priesthood and our unity together as a local church. You can think of it this way. Baptism and the Lord's Supper define the boundaries of the local church. So the local church knows who's in the temple to function as the temple and the priesthood together. Here's a catchy way of of putting it. This is from a guy named Bobby Jameson. Wrote a helpful little pamphlet on both baptism and the Lord's Supper, but here's a really catchy and nice way of thinking about it. Baptism joins one to many, right? You're bringing this new person into the church, into the priesthood, that initial identification. Baptism joins one to many. The Lord's Supper joins many into one. Baptism joins one to many, bringing in that new person in. The Lord's Supper joins many into one. And here's the thing. It's not about the acts in and of themselves. These are pictures. These are pictures of the gospel. These are pictures of the gospel that has made us God's people and God's priesthood. We've already talked about baptism. You're dying with Christ. You're identifying with him. You're being cleansed through the waters. You're raised with him, being brought out of that water. The Lord's Supper, the Christ's body given for us, Christ's blood shed for us, for his people to, to cleanse them from their sin, to, to, to allow them to enter into the Holy of Holies, to, to know God, to have to, to, to know God not just now, but for eternity. Again, taking the Lord's Supper apart from true faith and repentance doesn't gain you anything, and it actually does the exact opposite. It eats and drinks judgment on yourself. But the point is, it's a portrayal of why are we one people? Why are we one local church? It's because of Christ and his sacrifice. So by way of application, taking the Lord's Supper, you know, we, I, was, I was raised in a church, maybe many of you have thought this way, right? We, 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 uh, we take some time kind of introspectively, how's my week been? What's going on, right? Can I take the Lord's Supper? Or, in a worthy manner, that's not really what Paul's talking about in that passage. He's emphasizing you're one. When you take the Lord's Supper, it shouldn't only or even primarily be about introspection. It's not like you have to come to the Lord's Supper and say, was I worthy enough this week to drink the Lord's Supper? That's silly because what does the Lord's Supper portray? The gospel. So do you have to be worthy enough this week to avail yourself of the gospel? No. The gospel is what cleanses you, right? Now, obviously, if you are entrusting yourself to Christ and to his gospel, then there's a way you ought to live, but we we get the order, we need to get the order right. You don't, it's not because you're worthy that you partake in the gospel, it's because you take in the gospel that you live a worthy life. There's a direction here. And so when you come, maybe it's like this, you come on a Sunday morning when we're having communion and you think ahead of time, 
Yes, prepare your heart. Think about what's happened. Confess your sin. Repent, but trust yourself to Christ and take the elements. Why? Because they portray the gospel and they portray us together as one, one body together because of Christ's sacrifice. Here's, an, here's a way of thinking about it. When you take the Lord's Supper, there's, there's kind of three places in time you need to be thinking about. You need to be looking back to the cross. You need to be looking around you to those whom you're unified with, discerning the body. Who's the body that I'm with? And you need to look forward to the kingdom, proclaiming Christ's death until he comes, right? Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this cup with you until I drink it new in the Father's kingdom, that final messianic banquet where Christ will sit at the head of the table with all of his people, the entire church. So we look back to the cross, we look around us to whom the, the body is that Christ has purchased, and we look ahead to that banquet, to the kingdom that Christ has. So who is the church? Who is the church? There's an initial identification in baptism. There's an ongoing identification through the Lord's Supper. And there's a characteristic identification through sanctification. A characteristic identification through sanctification. Turn to Leviticus 10. I'll just say this briefly. I love Leviticus. Um... I really hope to preach through Leviticus because I think it's actually very practical in terms of giving us a theology of sin and holiness. But we'll see what the Lord does. So uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Familiar story. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put it in uh, fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. If we are the temple, if we are the priesthood, then we draw near to God, and God is a holy God. The refrain of Leviticus and for Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. You must be holy, for I am holy. This is why sanctification... Now, what do we mean by sanctification? Big, long, fancy term. Sanctification just means being set apart unto God, being consecrated unto His purposes. Yes, there's, there's, um, there, there's, a, there's a moral and ethical, right? I ought to have a holy, a moral, uh, an ethical life, right? Because of the Lord, that's part of it. But it's also this idea of being set apart unto the Lord's service, which we all are who are in the local temple and the local priesthood. We are set apart positionally to the Lord's service, which means because that's our identity, remember, identity determines your, your life, because that's our identity, we ought to live morally holy and pure lives. You must be holy, for I am holy. And if your life is not holy and you try to draw near to a holy God, you're consumed. You're consumed in judgment because of God's holiness. And that ought to be just fill, that ought to give you a picture in thinking about why personal holiness and corporate holiness matters. Paul speaks to this, 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking about uh, sexual immorality in the church of Corinth, and he's saying, that you, this is not right. You can't do this. And here's the reason he gives in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body, now at that point he's talking probably about the individual, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The, when we come to Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means we are individually of a sort, temples, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We need to be individually striving towards individual holiness because we've been purchased by Christ. We are part of the priesthood. We are part of the local temple. We need to honor God with our lives. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 
2 Corinthians 6, 14. Uh, Paul's dealing with some of the similar idol issues, right? Going into the uh, idol's temple, and can we do that? Can we not? And the Corinthians were really struggling with this. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. That's the idea of sanctification. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Individually, we need to be sanctified, but here he's not even just addressing the individual he is, but the corporate. Corporately, we need to be a holy people. Sanctification is important individually and collectively because we are drawing near to a holy God and we are manifesting God's holiness to a watching world. This is why, just dovetailing with it, this is why church discipline matters. What is church discipline? Church discipline is the church. Remember we talked about baptism. The church at a level is affirming by all that you can see, this one is a disciple of Christ. What's church discipline? The church discipline is the church withholding its affirmation by all that it can see, that one is a disciple because of a, a sinful life that does not honor Christ. And church discipline is practiced for two things, for restoration, right? There's, there's an element where church discipline, and I've seen this work, I've seen it work, uh, where, where the person is excluded from the fellowship, excluded from the temple, excluded from the gathering. They're, they're left out in the world, so to speak, and the Lord disciplines them through that in a way to humble them and bring them back. It's, it's for restoration that's part of why church discipline matters, but it's also for for purification. 1 Corinthians 5, we won't read it, but 1 Corinthians 5 talks about this idea of, yes, we're going to hand this person over to Satan for the disciplining of the flesh so that he may be saved. In other words, that's that restoration purpose that we're going to hand this person over. Uh, we're, we're withdrawing our affirmation. This one is saved. It doesn't look like it by what we can see of their life so that they can be disciplined and so humbled and so brought back to Christ. But if the person does not repent, then it's about purity of the church. It's about purifying the church, the local temple, the local priesthood for the honor of God. So, are, are you, are, are we living characteristically holy lives? And that's not just, oh, I'm going to muster my, my strength up, my resolve, and I'm going to be holy, right? No, this is why we have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit works in our hearts so that we desire what God desires and so that we can live a holy life. We can live a holy life only because of the Holy Spirit that Christ has purchased for us in the new covenant. But we, we ask ourselves, are we living characteristically holy lives? Where is there sin in your life that you need to eradicate, that you need to put to death? And here's the other thing. Are you willing to let your... Uh, to, to, there's two ways. Are you willing to let your brothers and sisters around you, this local body, come alongside you and help you in that process? And then for that individual, right, are you, as brothers and sisters of that individual, are you ready to bear their burdens and so those fulfill the law of Christ? Are you ready to come alongside someone and hold them accountable? And here's the commitment of us as the elders. We as a church will hold you accountable. We, we will hold each other accountable. I want you to hold me accountable. We want, we want to hold each other accountable. Why? We want to be a sanctified people, honorable and pleasing to the Lord, because we are the local temple. We are the local priesthood. 
we will hold each other accountable, and we will exercise church discipline if there is sin in your life that, that shows that you are not a disciple of Christ because Christ's honor is at stake. We never want to go that route, but it's the way that Christ ultimately uses in a way to for restoration, for discipline. But here's the good news, right, in all of this, right? What have we been asking? We've been asking this question, who is the church? Who is the church? There's an initial identification through baptism. There's a, there's a continual identification through the Lord's Supper, and there's a characteristic identification through sanctification. All of that is rooted in the gospel. It is rooted in Christ and what Christ has done. God the Son became man, lived a perfect life, a, a lived-in-flesh human righteousness, and he died on the cross. He gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, uh, in place of my sins, right? My, my heinous sins before God. He gave himself in my place to take the penalty for those sins, but he also gave me the righteousness that would be acceptable to God. That's why the veil is torn. That's why I can be called sinner though I am. I can draw near to God. I can draw near to his presence, and I can have confidence because of Christ. If you're here today visiting, or maybe you realize, I don't know Christ, or I'm not following Christ, or I'm, 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 I'm make-believing this, it's not really my own, then I wouldn't call you, repent and entrust yourself to Christ. Do you want confidence before a holy God that you can, you can have a relationship with him, that he can call you son or daughter, and you can call him father? Well, that only comes through entrusting yourself to Christ and what he has done on the cross. And then you can legitimately and joyfully participate in the waters of baptism in the Lord's Supper and in beginning to live a holy life because of the Holy Spirit he gives to you. So come to Christ. And even if you're a believer here this morning, this, we, keep, we never get beyond the gospel. We keep coming back to the gospel. That's why the, the Lord has given us the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves this is why we're part of God's people. This is why we're holy before God, right? We keep coming back to the gospel. Who is the church? We're identified through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and through holy lives. Let's pray to the Lord that he would do this individually and corporately among us. Lord Jesus, you are the great high priest. You are in the heavenly sanctuary at this moment, the one mediator between God and man. We thank you. We thank you for your work and for your mercy and your grace towards us. I would just pray that any who might be here this morning that do not know you, that you would rescue them, that you would have mercy on them, and that you would grant them grace. We thank you for making us not just individually saved, but a corporate people, a brothers and sisters in Christ from all sorts of races and backgrounds and persuasions, oh Lord God, it doesn't matter. You've made us one because of your sacrifice, and we thank you for that. Help us to hold each other accountable. Help us to labor and to love each other, to serve one another, Lord, that you might be honored. It's all about your glory. As Paul talked about last week, it's all about your glory, Lord Jesus. Make us a holy people. Grow us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.